Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. If you haven't already done so, I invite you to find a seat as we continue in our worship this morning. Uh, A couple comments before we read this morning's scripture passage. This fall, we've been studying the book of Judges, and so today we're going to take a break from that and look at something a little bit lighter, so we're going to look at Leviticus. Uh, Actually, as we approach the end of the calendar year, uh, many of us are considering charitable giving or we're invited to consider charitable giving by many emails and texts and various communications. And uh, so I was actually encouraged by our elders to teach a bit about stewardship because I would never choose to do that by myself. Um, but as I hope we'll see, this morning's passage brings together two things that we often struggle to hold together at the same time. And I hope that God's vision for us that lays behind this passage and really behind the whole Bible uh, helps us to experience both the celebrations and the sacrifices, not only of the life of faith, but also of the holiday season in a new and liberating and joyful way. So this is the living word of the living God. Let us give careful attention to the reading of it. If his offering is a fellowship sacrifice, and he is presenting an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present one without blemish before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, will splatter the blood on all the sides of the altar. He will present part of the fellowship sacrifice as a food offering to the Lord. The fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins. He will also remove the fatty lobe of the liver with the kidneys. Aaron's sons will burn it on the altar along with the burnt offering that is on the burning wood, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then the priest will burn the food on the altar as a food offering for a pleasing aroma. All fat belongs to the Lord. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray for understanding this passage. Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you that in the scriptures we have a record of your um, relationship with your people through the generations. And we thank you also for scholars and uh, commentators that allow us to go back and understand these things, which can easily feel very distant from us. So I pray that uh, as we reflect on this, we'd actually see the way that your heart revealed here connects with our experience of today, of the days to come, of the weeks to come, of the years to come. And we ask that you would do this because you're present in person of your Holy Spirit, and you can apply the things that we think about in ways far beyond my ability. So I pray for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The secular liturgical calendar of our modern society has a way of inducing spiritual whiplash. 
uh, it often feels like we lurch back and forth between gratitude and greed, self-indulgence and sacrifice. We go from Thanksgiving on Thursday to Black Friday to some of us worship on Saturday or Sunday, then to Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday. That's kind of a lot in one less than a week. Uh, and for many of us, the result of that spiritual pinballing is to either feel great shame or to retreat into uh, disengagement. Shame because we acquire things for ourselves while others go without. Because we feel bad, maybe, for not being more generous than we are. Or we feel shame for not being able to be generous with our family or friends the way we'd like to be. We might resent others enjoying, uh, enjoying abundance that we lack. Or, in the face of all of that, we might just emotionally disengage. This routine demands too much for me, so I'm going to just soldier through stoically and, and pretend it's not happening. But our passage this morning provides a vision for uniting both celebration and self-denial, not just in attention, but actually in harmony and to do so joyfully. So the fellowship uh, offering that we read about just a moment ago invites us to what I call fat-free feasting. So we're going to look at those two themes and what they mean in this passage, the feast and the fat. So, first, feasting. Ancient Israelite worship revolved around a variety of sacrifices that are detailed at the start of the book of Leviticus. It's not very riveting reading, especially if you're trying to read through the whole Bible in a year or a couple of years. A lot of people, that plan dies right here in Leviticus. And so I give you permission to just... Uh, scan through uh, these chapters. Um, th this passage is just right up there with the chapters of Moby Dick, if you ever read that. Half the chapters uh, detail uh, excruciating minutia about the 19th century whaling industry. Uh, and my um, AP English uh, senior uh, teacher actually made us read the entirety of Moby Dick over the Thanksgiving holidays. So I hope that you have uh, more fun things to do than that this holiday season. But God invested each of these sacrifices with a unique significance to highlight an aspect of life and relationship with him. And in the fellowship offering, the worshiper brought the animal to the tabernacle or the temple. It's sacrificed, it's slaughtered after he, he or she identifies with it. And then the blood is then splashed on the altar, which is a normal part of many of the sacrifices. And, but then the worshiper removed the fat, which the priest burnt on the altar. It, uh, and so there's a part of the sacrifice that is burnt up, which raises or invites the question, what do you do? with the rest of it. And you actually have to continue reading on uh, in Leviticus, which does take endurance, uh, to get to chapter 7, where the worshiper actually gives the priests who officiates a portion, but then kept the majority of the animal for him or her to enjoy together with friends or family or guests in a feast the following day or two. The most striking element of the fellowship offering, which is different than many of the others, is the feast that follows. Unlike the other offerings, the fellowship offering was entirely voluntary 
and the one who presented it received most of it back to enjoy. So what do we learn from that? In Hebrew, the, shel- the, um, uh, fe- the fellowship offering, the word for it is actually shelamim, and you might hear echoes of a Hebrew word you may know uh, that it shares the same root as the Hebrew word shalom, which is sometimes translated as a peace offering. Now, the biblical concept of shalom is much richer than our notions of peace as just the absence of conflict. It has a bigger vision of a rich and full enjoyment of life as God intended. The NRSV translation actually uh, labels this as an offering of well-being. And the further explanation of uh, this offering in Leviticus highlights the different things that would prompt a fellowship offering. It was a way of giving thanks to God for him intervening in your life. It was uh, was sometimes used as a vow offering. So you would ask for God to answer a prayer, and you would say that if you answer this prayer, I will then offer a fellowship offering. Uh, If you were here last week, there was a terrible misuse of this sort of vow offering by Jephthah, which we should never do. Uh, But better examples are Jacob, who, when he was fleeing from the anger of his brother Esau, the somewhat uh, legitimate anger of his brother, vowed that he would present an offering to God if God brought Jacob back peaceably to the land that God had promised his family. Uh, Hannah, during her experience of infertility, vowed that she would dedicate a child born to her to the Lord And after Samuel's birth, she presented a lavish fellowship offering as part of the fulfillment of her vow. Peace offerings accompanied some of the most joyful occasions in the life of the history of Israel. When a king was anointed, uh, when the uh, Ark of God arrived in Jerusalem for the first time, and when Solomon's temple was completed. And the common theme of them was always joy before God and gratitude to him. The book of Deuteronomy repeatedly joins this note of joy together with the feast. It says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your servants, and you shall sacrifice fellowship offerings and rejoice before the Lord your God. The note of joy is important because many of us harbor a sneaking suspicion that God doesn't actually want us to be happy, and his main agenda is to annoy or frustrate us. That God is a divine scold, but nothing could be further from the truth. As our wise creator, there are things that he knows will not satisfy us the way that we think they will. But he made us for joy, and like a loving father, he delights to share in the joy of his children. Fellowship offering is at heart a family meal. We usually confirm agreements uh, perhaps with a handshake or maybe a signature on a contract, but ancient agreements were often sealed through a shared meal. If you've ever filled out the paperwork at a car dealership for a loan or to close on a house, you probably wished that there had been a meal included in that lengthy process. The fellowship offering was a ratification or reaffirmation of the relationship, a covenant meal. Uh, 
and that experience of relationship with God and the presence of God is transformed in the New Testament with the, and fulfilled by Christ in the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate together every week. In giving us this meal, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And by his death, he cemented a new and gracious relationship with, between all who believe in him and his Father and our God. He offers him receive his body and his blood in a mysterious way, in a spiritual way, as we feast on him by faith. We are humbled by the great debt of our sin that could only be erased by his death, and we also celebrate God's generous grace that provided to us a substitute and a savior. And together we share in this meal that reminds us that long before we give anything to God, not only has he given us everything that we are, but he's also given his most precious gift of his son. But the Lord's Supper is not the only expression of the principle of the fellowship offering in this passage in our lives. In the early church, the Lord's Supper was actually a full meal. And most churches, like ours, kind of separates that into two activities. We express our love for one another through shared meals. Whether those are all church events or whether they are smaller meals at a home group or a spontaneous meal together through the course of a week. In these ways, we continue the spirit of the early Christian community that gathered daily, either for worship in the temple or breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, thanking God, something they did together with one another. Now, I also want to acknowledge, though, in light of this note of joy, and I can say from personal experience that it can be hard to share in the joy of others when our lives are in turmoil or disarray. If we're struggling, other people's celebrations can sometimes deepen our sorrow. But that's part of the point of our life together. As we heard earlier in the service, Paul writes to the church in Rome, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And one of the ways that we show sympathy and support for one another is to share one another's burdens and one another's sorrows. But on the other side of that, one of the ways that God tempers our sadness is to include us in one another's joys. We do both. And both help us through our own individual highs and lows. So the fellowship offering invites us to feast before God. But at the same time, there's what we could call the forbidden fat. It's a fat-free feast. The prohibition of verses 16 and 17 is emphatic. All fat belongs to the Lord. Permanent statute throughout your generations wherever you live. Uh, I'm a Jack Spratt, right? Jack Spratt could eat no fat. So I have really no problems with this passage. It, it was, it's actually kind of nice. I like the leanest cuts of meat, and I will trim off every piece of fat I can see unless I'm having dinner at your home, which I will be very grateful for whatever you prepare. Uh, it's not a health reason. It's just a personal taste and texture preference, although I guess I eat plenty of things that are fried in fat. 
So is this divine sanction, is this a divine sanction for my own personal culinary preferences? Wouldn't that be convenient for me, right? Or is God divinely endorsing a low-fat diet? Good news, especially for those of us who like bacon. No, Jesus said you can enjoy everything. And uh, he put an end, for people who follow him, he put an end to the dietary restrictions uh, that had shaped God's people in the past. But the best explanation comes from the role that fat and fatness play in the broader biblical story. And to get this, we kind of have to flip some of our assumptions upside down. So one uh, contemporary resource put it this way. In a fat-phobic society, it's hard to imagine that fat and fatness are, convey anything other than sloth or laziness or even loathing or self-loathing. Yet when we turn to scripture, we find fat and fatness used repeatedly to represent prosperity, blessing, abundance, and bounty. Put most simply, fat shaming in the ancient world of the Bible would be, you're so skinny, okay? Because in a subsistence level agricultural society, to, and to have a little girth was actually a symbol of God's blessing and abundance, that you were well fed because most weren't. So Isaac blesses Jacob saying, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. The fat portions are often the best portion, a delicacy. And in Genesis 4, Abel's sacrifice is of the fat portions. Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices. Instead, as Paul writes in Romans 12, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So as we think through the implications of this for ourselves, we have to uh, ask ourselves, how does it connect with today and our lives? If Paul says that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, then we can ask the question, do I give God the prime cuts of my life, or do I give him the half-warm leftovers? I will give the gift of going first to admit that as I look, for, look at the schedule of my week, there are some times when I'm thinking, oh, wow, if I can just get through Sunday morning, I can finally run the TV on the couch instead of being excited about the privilege that I have in not only participating, but leading God's worship. Do we give God and others our best or just the rest? Uh, I remember seeing uh, a while ago that um, the logic for Apple having a few different tiers of their products is that the top end uh, items are usually things people will buy for themselves and they have uh, cheaper uh, entry level items because people usually buy those as gifts for others when they're buying people Apple gifts. Uh, or I think of my own experience when I used to uh, kind of share parent co-op with uh, some friends, and so I had to plan meals for when all of these kids would be at my house for one day a week. And so I'd go to the store and think, oh, you know what, it's a bunch of kids, they're like three and four and five, so I can just get the cheap hot dogs. They don't really care. And, and honestly, the kids really don't care. Um, but one of the things I love uh, in my family about Rebecca is that when she hosts a meal, she wants to make it special. So she pulls out the best recipes. 
even if they cost more for ingredients, even if they cost more in time and effort and skill. Now, why do we not do that uh, when, we th when we are considering how we're going to give to God or others? I think often the reason that we would hold back is because we think that if we give God our best, then we're just out, right? And that we'll worry that we'll begrudge the loss. We'll wish we had it back someday. There's an interesting story at one point in the Gospels where Peter says to Jesus kind of resentfully, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus says to Peter, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, don't worry, Peter. Don't worry, Matt. Don't worry, you who follow me. God will return back to you infinitely more than you ever sacrifice for him. One day, you will laugh at yourself for thinking that you could somehow ever come off worse in the bargain for trusting your life to him. The forbidden fat was a perpetual exercise in self-denial, even amidst feasting and joy. God actually joined both together in the same moment intentionally. They aren't opposites, but they are two sides of a healthy, well-balanced life in relationship with God. And so may that encourage you as we have this crazy secular liturgical week coming up that it's actually great to have all of those things combined together. It's interesting that when you look at the New Testament, the metaphor of fatness is actually incredibly rare. There's only really three times that it appears, and two of them are almost identical uses with regard to feasts. So in Matthew 22, there's a parable of the wedding feast, and in Luke 15, there's the feast of the father upon the return of a lost son. And at both parties, a joyful father kills a fattened calf because both parties are lavish affairs. Uh, Warren Buffett regularly ranks as one of the world's wealthiest people. And so starting in 2000, he began raising money for a charity by auctioning the right to have lunch with him. He took a couple years off for COVID, but that restarted in 2022, and the, new, uh, the winning bid set a new record of $19 million to have lunch with one of the world's richest men. And yet every week in worship, we meet with someone vastly wealthier and wiser than Warren Buffett. And it's not because we won a costly auction. The meal we share was paid for by the very life of God the Son. And it's just the appetizer for the feast that we will share with Father, Son, and Spirit in a new heavens and a new earth. And in light of that, how can we not be gripped with gratefulness and praise? And how can we not be changed? Final point, 
during his life on earth, Jesus loved to share meals with people. In fact, he got the reputation for being a drunk, drunkard and a glutton because he went to so many parties. Is that your image of Jesus? Because that's the rumors that spread around about him. And one of my favorite of these stories is in Luke 19, where Jesus is approaching Jericho, and he comes into the city. There's this little, short, grasping tax collector who is trying to see Jesus, and nobody's going to make space for him because he's rich off the back of all of these fellow citizens. So he has to climb a tree to see Jesus, which would have been ridiculous. And Jesus walks into Jericho, and in all that crowd, he points to Zacchaeus in the tree and says, I must eat with you today. And Zacchaeus receives him joyfully, and though he did not deserve it, Jesus ate with him. And in response is, today salvation has come to this house. Now, the salvation didn't come when Zacchaeus made a pledge to be generous, when did salvation come to the house of Zacchaeus? When Jesus walked in the door. When Jesus walked into the door. As Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, even if he had to lose his own life to do it. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Jesus himself is our peace who has reconciled us to God through the cross. So let us rejoice always before our God and with one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank and praise you for the ways that you build routines into our lives to shape, um, give us habits to understand our relationship with you, of how you have approached us and then bring us to yourself. Father, we pray that as we continue our worship, as we continue to uh, live our lives as lives of worship and sacrifice, we pray that we would always remember that anything that we give is given to us first by you and is the smallest um, incomparable gift in return for the great gift of your son, Jesus. We ask that you help us to see this. Reorder our hearts like you reordered the heart of Zacchaeus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.